This is the Education Gadfly Show. They're watching TikTok at school, too. Oh, God, they're watching TikTok at school, too. Uh, Great. Okay. We're all going to hell in a handbasket, people. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please join me in welcoming our special guest for this week, Sarah Sparks. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. Good to be here. Yeah, Sarah, for those of you that don't know, but then what is wrong with you? Uh, Sarah is a reporter and data journalist for Education Week. Your beat for a while now has been education research, right? Education research and now data journalism, too. Oh, that's very great. Also joining us, also big data nerd, sorry, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I like to pretend that I'm a data nerd, you know, especially this time of year when we're looking at NAEP, which we're going to talk about. I get those Excel spreadsheets out. (laughs) You're very good at lowering expectations. I sometimes I do subtraction. I every once in a while do some multiplication and it's pretty exciting. But uh, yes, David doesn't let me uh, over there when he's using the, the real programs. What, what do we use? Is it SAS that we use? Or Data. <laughs> you as well, Sarah? Oh, no, we go for like R and yeah. things that are free. <laughs> oh, nice. Excellent. Oh, good. Ah, God bless Ed Week. You know, back in the day, Ed Week used to provide some pretty nice benefits, including free massages. Did they get rid of that? Oh, a long time before I got yeah. there. <laughs> they did. Yeah. I got my start in education policy at Education Week. What was your beat? I was just a, a lowly summer end. I'm surprised. Working you... for Craig Gerald on Quality Count. It was the second one. It focused on urbanicity. And why did we see achievement lower? in big cities even lower than you'd expect based on demographics. I'm surprised you got out. We suck our interns mm-hmm. in very frequently. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, Ron Wolk, who headed Ed Week back then, got an email, the early days mm-hmm. of email, from a certain checker fin looking for program associate or something. And, and it had gotten out, word had gotten out that I liked vouchers. And so, of course, Ron pointed me in that direction. And the rest is history. But enough about that. Let's talk about NAEP on this week's Ed Reform Update. Okay, Sarah, so we have talked about the National Assessment of Educational Progress quite a bit on this show. You wrote a great article recently looking at the question of screen time and whether that could be something that might help explain it. I find it pretty compelling. Let's talk about it. What do you see when you look out there at the evidence around screens and whether that could be related to all this? Now, of course, when you're talking NAEP, the first thing you have to say is it is a giant test and everything goes into it. And there is no one thing that will ever affect NAEP or any of the tests like that. And correlation is not causal. Absolutely. Um, But one of the really interesting things about it is the nation's report card. Mm -hmm. And when you have drops in reading as broad as we see. And we're seeing one in three kids reading proficient on this test. And we're seeing very broad based drops across racial groups, Mm -hmm. across most levels of performance. Mm -hmm. But over the last decade, widening gaps between the top and bottom performers. With really the the bottom falling out. You look at the lowest 10%, I think on the eighth grade NAEP, it was something like, you know, they're now reading at 10 points lower. That's a whole grade level. We've lost a grade level for the lowest performing kids in a decade. I mean, just horrible. And when you look at that, you need to try to find some broader trends to try to see what might be going on there. And uh, one of the things that kind of popped into my head has been, okay, what has been happening with digital devices, kids' use of them? And the problem with looking at screen time is that when you start looking at research on screen time, everything gets lumped into it. Screen time in most studies are everything from television to video games 
games to educational programs on computers in schools mm-hmm. to social media and bullying and all of it gets together. And what we have as an opportunity in the NAEP is they ask some very specific questions. On and one of the ones they asked was, how many hours are you using digital devices for language arts mm-hmm. tasks? And so we were able to look at that in particular. And there was a significant link between the amount of time students were spending on uh, using digital devices for language arts tasks and how well or poorly they were performing with students who were spending really half an hour, hour tops, performing significantly better than those spending more. And this is just during the school. Right, right, right. And it also gave you a sense, I mean, just looking at the answers, there were students who were spending an hour, two hours, three hours, four hours on but language arts on screen. Yeah. So we don't know from that question whether these students were low performers who were being mm-hmm. put on digital devices for enrichment, remediation purposes, yeah. things like that, or if these were part of a class, all of who were on digital devices, and for whatever reason, the digital devices been causing some issues for them and lower right. scores. We don't know that from this data, but it does mean that we need to look closely at what's going on here. And this is just during the school day, right? I don't right. think the NAEP background question had anything about screen time at home, but we... There were other questions in NAEP mm-hmm. around access to digital devices yeah. at home, and that has basically become universal, at least some access yeah. to the internet via computer or phone or something. Well, so, in, and it's interesting, you can look at other data. Uh, so, you know, I've, I, I found this common sense media survey from a few years ago where they asked, uh, you know, I guess parents about their kids' screen time use. This is for younger kids, zero to eight, you know, and it showed that the the lowest income kids had a huge increase in screen time uh, from something like 2013 to 2017, which is big news because for a long time, of course, lower income kids have always done more screen time. That's not new. In the old days, it was TV. Now it's phones probably. But but what's changed is that this increase was really alarming. And you know, meanwhile, at the middle and at the top of the income spectrum, it was pretty flat. Uh, you know, so in my own sense would be, look, if you're talking about an eighth grade reading test, Sure, it matters what those kids are doing in eighth grade, right? But it might matter also what they've been doing at home for years, right? And, and what they were doing when they were younger as well. You know, it's sort of cumulative, right? Everything that has happened up to that kid's life over those 13 years could have an impact on how they perform on that reading test, right? And, and if it's true, if we're seeing that lower income families are, are increasingly allowing their kids to do more screen time above what we're seeing in, in other families, you know, how the heck do we solve that problem? Man, that's a tough. Not to say that wealthier kids or middle class kids aren't doing too much screen time either. I mean, they're all, everybody's doing a lot of screen time, right? Well, and interestingly, um, the international assessment for adult literacy, which we got a little peek at last uh, week, and we'll get the international comparisons mm-hmm. this week. But the numbers are not looking good for American adults. Mm-hmm. I believe it's something like about one in five American adults are reading at the absolute lowest literacy level, Ugh. and the literacy levels are lining up with our our kids so it looks like things are pushing that trend is just pushing up as it goes so david i want to get you in here soon to be a new parent gonna be facing the screen time challenge all too soon yeah i just won't tell them that works until the first time there's like a sickness and Uh everybody's got a a stomach bug and then you're just messed up (laughs) yeah so that'll allow too bad so you know we've got the stuff that's in our control as educators right and in the education world we can decide how much screens to use in school, 
right? And mm-hmm. and that this should certainly be for people who are especially thinking about going big on blended learning and on all these approaches. You know, to really ask, okay, if we're talking about kids coming from poverty and they, we know they're probably doing a lot of screens at home, you know, how does that influence our thinking about what they do in school? But again, how do we get any purchase over what happens at home? Is there anything that you that we can do? It, do we need some kind of public campaign like we've had on smoking, like we've had on other issues to try to encourage families to not use the phone as the babysitter or at least put some limits on it? Well, Mike, it's, I think it's tough when the people waging the campaign are all addicts themselves. <laughs> okay. Um, it's tough here because I'm trying to integrate a lot of things. And I feel like you sort of can't speak in a research sense because for all the reasons discussed, right? But anecdotally, it seems like we're all addicted. The internet is a lean-in experience. I have personally found that it is increasingly difficult for me to read an actual book. Mm-hmm. Um, and if that's true of me, you know, someone who loves to read, loves school, mm-hmm. it's almost certainly true of everyone else. Yeah. For me, like sort of the harder question is, well, maybe it's not so hard a question, but as a sort of younger millennial, elder millennial type, I think there's a sense in our generation often that older generations don't really understand the internet. <laughs> there's something. Okay, boomer. Yeah. I'm okay, boomer. Yeah. Exactly. I do think in some ways, young people are well equipped to understand what's happening online. They understand mm-hmm. that there's a lot of misinformation out there. Mm-hmm. Um, they're sort of naturally scared skeptical of the information environment. Mm. But I think I am speaking for the majority when I say there's still clearly value in the traditional mode of reading. And there are times when you're going to have to use that as an adult. And I'm not sure we should abandon that. Yeah, look, and it's not just like we think that the kids are, well, they're reading digital books instead of, you know, regular. They're not that's, doing that. That's the other they're thing. They're probably playing games, right? They're watching it, YouTube. They're watching TikTok. I mean, it's at home. I don't mean in school, but I mean at home, you know, that. They're watching it, TikTok at school, too. Oh, God, they're watching TikTok at it's school, re- too. Uh, great. Okay. We're all going to hell in a handbasket, people. Pack it up right now. I mean, I think it's fair <sighs> to say that a lot of the promise of digital learning, um, as it were, does has not panned out. Right. I mean, we're not seeing great. All right, but you're not answering my question, I'm not, which is, what is to say, question? my question is, let's imagine that we have some kids who are now spending all afternoon, all night, all weekend looking at yeah. somebody's phone, including very young children. Yeah. Okay. In upper middle class parent uh, families and, and community in our society, you know, we, we sort of feel guilty about that. And there's some pressure to not allow that. Now we have the benefit of having the money to pay for structured activities and often nannies and babysitters and da 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 da. So if you're poor and you're a single parent, which most poor families are, it's hard. It's really tough. You don't have those resources. And so I can imagine the temptation to let the kid, you know, play on the phone or play on the PlayStation is overwhelming. And it might be hurting them because they are not doing other more wholesome things instead, like reading a book, but also like playing outside or just interacting with humans. I mean, it, is there a question mark? At the <laughs> yeah. yeah I mean, yes. I, what do we do about it? Is there anything that we, the big capital, we, you know, W.E. can yeah, do? I would back up there. I would right. really back up because so <laughs> the boomers, yeah. their parents uh, went nuts over all of this use of TV as a babysitter. Yeah. Yep. Right. And there was agonizing for that. And somehow they managed to grow up and be fine. Well. 
know. Okay, I mean, so then SAT maybe... scores did plummet, etc., etc., but okay. What we need to find out now yeah. is how coming to read digitally affects how they learn, right? How yeah. they learn to read. Whether we can whether we can yeah. teach them to learn in both of those modes, mm-hmm. digitally and yeah. learning, because yeah, it's I'm, great I'm for them that. to be That's able fine. to read yeah. digitally and be able to read yeah. in books. We yeah. just need them to be That's able to great. also read in books. Yeah. So it seems as though the issue right now is not that they shouldn't be using screens. It's that parents should be using screens mm-hmm. with their kids and that in general, any activity should be done in moderation, right. which is true right. of any activity yeah, yeah. and anything no, right. of, I mean, right. Look, if kids are doing I mean, educational so games I at home, I, I, you know, Maybe that's not ideal, no, but, but it's we don't fine. know. But no, no, it doesn't. We don't know that it's oh, come fine. On. You think? That, well, well, right, right. No, but you we think don't that's actually that. what's happening? No, what I'm what I'm saying is at this point, yeah. we don't know whether the research says that problems with screens mm-hmm. are because of the light, because of how it affects our reading. Right. We don't know, and so we don't know how to fix it. Right. If it's an issue with vision and light, we fix it in one. If it's a if it's a problem with how they uh, process longer tension, we fix it in a different way. And frankly, if it turns out that the kids are coming up di- true digital, mm-hmm. that they don't have the same problems we do because we are, in a sense, non-native digital mm-hmm. learners. And so we're more subject to mm-hmm. these problems than maybe it'll take care of itself. But we don't know any of that yet. And, and again, we're, I think we're just talking about two different things here. I'm not talking about reading online. I'm not talking about education online. I'm talking about kids, you know, doing brain numbing stuff with somebody's phone, <laughs> perhaps speaking from personal experience, right? I mean, I've been writing for a long time sure. about some great stuff that you can do with screens educationally. And I'm very glad that my sons do a lot of that. But, you know, without oversight, mm-hmm. they'd also waste a lot of time doing them brain numbing stuff. And look, another data point, there was a survey came out recently showing that the just in like the last five years, the percentage of American children who regularly ride a bike has plummeted, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I'm just worried about the or American for fun has childhood is changing dramatically and worried about that. Mm-hmm. And, and I understand there's been other times where technology has come and we've had this sort of moral uh, panic. Uh, but I don't know. That doesn't mean we shouldn't panic. I, I think it's fair to say we, we can stop worrying about digital access. Personally, <laughs> yes, right. the digital divide, we right. can stop that. Part of the getting them off of screens mm-hmm. is getting parents mm-hmm. willing to kick their kids out of the house yeah. and be comfortable with having their children out of their sight for two yeah. minutes. You know what happens, though, Sarah, in my experience, when you kick the kids out of the house and they go play with their friends? They go find some screens to play on. Now, at least they're doing it together, <laughs> okay? But the, in general, I mean, that's part of the challenge, right? I mean, that free range parenting is often kids on screens. And and uh, I'm just saying, yeah, obviously, you hear where my, my concerns are. And yet, again, if it's it, the, the big question is if there's variation, if it's that upper middle class parents are to some degree keeping a cap on it and their kids are doing okay, but for low income kids, it's it's just out of control, um, then and that could be contributing to making the achievement gap even bigger. Mm-hmm. That is something that is, is really got to get our attention and it is not something that's going to be easy to fix. So much more we could talk about. Thank you for joining us on the show. This was fantastic. And and people should check out her article at edweek.org. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Welcome back to the show, Amber. Thanks, Mike. We've been chatting about screen time. You know, I've been trying to make this case that it's basically ruining our children. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I, I actually completely agree with you. I, 
I mean, so, we, we agree. Uh, all right. All right. I mean, what, did you see this, uh, Amber, with nieces and nephews and such? Oh, I mean, my gosh. Yes. My godson. Wow. You give him an iPad and he's just in a coma and, you know, you're done. So, yeah, yeah I, I definitely see it. it's like a trance or something. Right. I mean, but we kind of get it as adults, too. I know. I know. Mark Mark Bowerline calls them the demon screens. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, I don't know. I just, uh, it's so hard. It's so hard. Yeah, it's so hard. You it know, is. Steve, it's so hard. Steve Jobs was supposed to fix education, and here he may have ruined it with his iPhone. So Oof, I know. I don't know. We've got to figure out how to harness it more productively, right, in, in classrooms. We're still having that discussion. Well, but Classrooms is easy, right? I mean, not easy. Yeah, that we can do. I'm just figuring out how we do it at home. All right. Well, Amber, tell us what you got for us this week. All right, we got a new study. It's a bit different than what I normally do, but I think I think you'll find it interesting. It's in a peer-reviewed psychology journal. Researchers at the University of Chicago ran a bunch of randomized experiments, both controlled and not controlled settings. It was about five total. It had about 1,700 participants total. And they were trying to determine whether adults learn more from their successes or failures. And there are basically no direct implications. I'll just tell you all that now for schools or kids. So that's the part we're going to discuss after I tell you about the study. Okay, Um, it's just interesting, but it doesn't have like K-12 implications per se. So apparently there's this huge body of motivation research, that's what it's called, that shows that failure actually undermines individuals' commitments to their goals and it leads them to disengage. But somehow in America and other countries, still most people have this notion that we learn more from our mistakes than our successes. And so the study attempts to learn more about how failure affects motivation in the moment of the failure itself. And yeah, some of the, you know how these experiments work. Sometimes it's a little hokey, but anyway, I don't have time to go into all five experiments, but basically participants were randomized to a failure or success condition. They were given a batch of yes or no questions. And for the failure condition, participants only receive negative feedback. So your answer is incorrect. That's what they were shown. And they didn't receive any feedback on the other questions. So you had to obviously read between the lines when you got something right since it was yes or no anyway. And then in this success condition, participants received only positive feedback, which basically said your answer is correct and no other feedback on the other questions. So participants take the test, then they get feedback, then they do this distractor task for a while, like tell me about your favorite book and why to kind of get their mind off of things. And then they take the test again. And in short, all the experiments showed that participants are better able to recall the correct answers afterwards if they receive the positive feedback. Then they hypothesize that like what's going on here and they hypothesize that humans experience quote ego threat which means basically that your self-esteem takes a hit and you disengage a little bit when you get negative feedback so then they run another experiment and they attempt to mediate this ego threat by simulating a scenario in which you learn from other people's failures so this time each participant received failure feedback on one set of three questions and success feedback on another set of three questions so now they're experiencing both the success and the failure messages But in one of the conditions, they receive feedback like before, like I just told you. But in the other, they're told by study facilitators, quote, in this set of questions, you'll see how someone else answered three questions and got feedback on and you get feedback on, quote, this hypothetical person's answers. So then you click through and you see how this other hypothetical person answered and you get feedback on their answers. And then afterwards, you reselect your answer choice, which is sort of kind of like trying to simulate a vicarious learning activity, like you're vicariously learning through someone else. And in short, participants learn more from this hypothetical other person's experience in failure than when they were getting the failure messages, okay? So they learn basically the same amount 
from the person, their personal successes and then other successes, but they learn more from the failure when it's this vicarious person that you're supposedly learning from. So the analysts at the end sort of, sort of hypothesize that this vicarious learning eliminates the ego threat and increases people's ability to learn more from failure. And then they argue at the end that although failure feedback is inevitable, like, you know, you're sometimes your people are going to fail and obviously they're going to get a message about that. Speak for yourself, that Amber. It, <laughs> that it may be better that if we can separate the failure feedback from one's own ego is kind of their takeaway. So I'm like, okay, what does this mean for schools and kids if this is actually true? That if somehow we learn better from someone else's failures than our own because our ego takes a hit, if we, you know, believe in all these experiments and what they're showing, then how does that translate to how we communicate with kids who get it wrong? First of all, you know, as an English teacher, you must love this, Amber, because of course, the whole point of reading great literature is to learn from the mistakes of other characters, you know, fictional characters even better, right? So that we don't have to make those uh, mistakes ourselves. I I guess this particular experiment doesn't really lend itself to learning life's lessons from, you know, the wisdom kinds of things, perhaps. That's right. I thought it was kind of compelling because honestly, they ran it so many different ways. And uh, like I said, in controlled and non-controlled scenarios, They did one with telemarketers where telemarketers are sort of given feedback on how they, you know, engage with their clients and and they're given some sort of yes, no kind of answers on how you're supposed to engage with people. So it's kind of a neat experiment. If nothing else, it clearly demonstrates, again, the power of positive reinforcement, right? Mm -hmm. It does. This is is why... We do the the feedback sandwich oftentimes, right? One positive, then a critique, then another positive. (laughs) All right. Uh, uh, You know, it is interesting. I could imagine if, let's say, you gave a test and a bunch of kids got the same questions wrong, it would be an interesting technique to then the next day maybe say, well, you know, here's a question that a lot of kids in the other class got wrong. Right. And let's talk about it and maybe find Mm -hmm. a way to, you know, make it not about the kid themselves. Your failure. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it also makes me think of like, you know, this growth mindset stuff, right? Mm-hmm. How you try to try to reorient kids or adults, frankly, towards the notion that failure is not really failure. It's just learning. You've yeah. tackled something difficult. And so mm-hmm. that's the fun part. It's interesting. I mean, look, I, I, none of this surprises me. Most people don't handle criticism well. Anything critical sticks to you like Velcro, right? Unless you're some kind of Buddha. I mean, it's really hard not to take things personally when you're criticized. I mean, that's why it's almost like, is this about learning from failure or is it learning about criticism? And learning from criticism, you know, and I wonder. So, for example, it, it may play out differently. You think about kids in sports, you know, there's certain sports where my kids do swimming, you know, and you just, there's no sugarcoating it. Some kids come in first and some kids come in last, and that's the way it is. But that's a little different from a criticism or a grade, maybe. Not to criticize the study, but maybe to criticize a little bit the. The form of feedback, I I don't know. It does not strike me as totally realistic in the real world. Seems like we can we can do better than that. But the average teacher does. Please don't take that as a criticism of your selection. Yeah, right, right. (laughs) Because you're gonna hurt my feelings if you do, and I'm. I'm We're not commenting on this one. We're just you know. And this other, other all these other ones you've chosen uh, were so great. Yeah, yeah. And and just hypothetically, this other podcast that has this other segment called the Research Five Minutes, you know, chose this study that was kind of a weird choice. And that's all we're saying. We're not right. That's it. And so I'm going to learn from that other person's (laughs) choice and and do better next time because it certainly wasn't wasn't my failure. It was not your failure. Wow. All right. Good stuff. I look these psychology experiments are always fun, even though you know so many of them never actually hold up or replicated. But hey. 
I will also say, as a teacher, I feel like you have to learn some of these little tricks. Partly it's just experience and practice, yeah. but it's certainly good to be reminded. Whenever possible, there is something to be said about positive. Re- Catch them doing something right. There you go. Boom. Well, we've done something right. We have taken up people's time and informed them, hopefully, of something about education reform. But that is all the time we've got. Until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gap Life Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.